0: a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey everybody, the Other People Podcast is offered freely. All episodes of this show are available free of charge. Your support makes a difference. If you would like to support this program, you can do so at
1: patreon.com slash pod. That's patreon.com slash other PPL pod. Thanks.
2: You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common.
0: Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done.
2: I think it's really beautiful.
0: beautiful. Jake, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, It was like your head exploded seeing what was really there.
2: And now here's your
1: host, Brad Listing just one person at just one time Hey everybody how's it going this is the other people podcast it's good to be with you you're here you made it how's it going i'm brad listy i'm in california i'm in los angeles this is a podcast chelsea hodson is my guest today she has a new essay collection out it's called tonight i'm someone else it's available from henry holt and uh, it is the official june pick of the nervous breakdown book club the nervous is my online culture magazine and literary community. It has its own monthly book club if you're interested in that. Uh, great to talk to Chelsea. She's a lot of fun, and her book is, is wonderful. I'm excited to shine a light on it. I'm excited to share that conversation with you. Before we get there, I was, I was trying to think of what to say. I, and, and you know what kept coming back into my brain? Anthony Bourdain and Kate Spade. All that sad stuff from last week that I think all of us were hit pretty hard by. Those kinds of stories are really affecting. At least they are for me. I think they are for most of us. And I was trying to think of something good to say. I was trying to get philosophical. I I did a few takes of this monologue that I've deleted, where I try and it doesn't come out right, or I just ramble on interminably. I want you to know that I deleted like a 17-minute version of this monologue. It's just, I I couldn't get to the point where it was funny. And this is a big struggle for me. Not that it's ever going to be funny, but I just, I I don't know what the value is. Or I just, I don't like to be creative without humor. And I don't know how to make, there's no, there's no joke there. This is just fucking sad. And this is a lot, of, a lot of the reason why I've been struggling to write my book for half of my adult life. <laughs> this book that I've been working on forever is trying to deal with things like miscarriage and a child with disabilities and heartbreak and grief and existential crises of magnitude. Like, how do we make that palatable and enjoyable and funny for a general audience? Maybe there's just no way. And yet I can't stop fucking trying. So yeah, that's what I was going to, I don't know what else to talk about. That's what's sort of on my brain. I reposted the Jennifer Michael Hecht interview that I did a few years ago. I don't know if you guys saw that, but she wrote an entire book about suicide that is very persuasive. It's called stay a history of suicide and the arguments against it. And I recommend that book. It makes it make some sense and it makes a compelling case for why we should all stick around. I was trying to talk (laughs) like in these, uh, in these, uh, aborted, if I may use that term, uh, monologues that I've, you know, I tried and then failed to execute. So if I may use that term, I aborted the podcast that I couldn't execute. I aborted the monologue because I couldn't execute it. Jesus. If I, may, if I may use his name. <laughs> I aborted the monologue because I couldn't execute it, Jesus. See, now it's getting funny somehow because I've included the word abort, execute, and Jesus into a, uh, into a monologue about suicide. So in one of the aborted monologues that I could not execute I was getting into all of this uh Buddhist philosophy <laughs> about like the nature of self which if I could ever get around to writing it down properly which I think is part of what I'm trying to do with my book it feels very vital to me it feels like the most well, probably the most vital conversation or one of the most vital conversations we can be having as a species is uh, who are we? What the fuck are we? What is a self? Where are we? You know, the kinds of questions you ask yourself when you, like, just ate a pot brownie in your dorm room your freshman year of college. Those are actually good questions. You might want to stay with that a while. That's my feeling on it. And so, to try to encapsulate, and then we're going to get to Chelsea because she's way more fun than I am, is... uh to try to encapsulate what I was what I was getting at is simply that uh, everything is impermanent everything is always in flux everything including you including me everything all phenomena constantly in flux from second to second and there's no such thing as a separate self nothing can be by itself alone you look at a tree a tree is made of uh, all sorts of different things. It's made of sunlight, air, water, soil, minerals. There's no tree. Tree is just a a word designation for this thing that's actually a composite. Do you see what I'm saying? If you take the component parts uh, out of the tree, the tree collapses. Take the sunlight out of the tree, no tree. So, (laughs) So the point that I wanted to get to is that the same is true for human beings. We are impermanent. We are like drops of water in a river, constantly moving. And we have no separate self either. We're made of our ancestors. We're, we're made of 70% water. Stop for a moment as you listen to this. Feel yourself from the inside out. Think to yourself, I'm 70% water. It's easy to forget that. We all know that, but we forget it. It's ridiculous. So, (laughs) you see, this is why the monologue uh, was a failure. It's why I aborted it. It's why I couldn't execute it. The point I was trying to make is that we're impermanent, and in the act of uh, committing suicide, a person is you know, they're, they're obviously a victim in that moment, but they're also victimizing future versions of themselves that might very much want to continue living. And then in addition to that, you're also victimizing, you know, your friends and family, your immediate survivors and all the people that the loss affects, especially if you're a cultural figure, it ripples out. It really has an impact on people. But I I just like thinking about it that way. I like thinking about it in cosmic terms. I like remembering that my identity is not nearly as fixed as it can feel. It's easy to trick yourself into believing that you are your thoughts, believing that you are your body, that that's it, that
0: there's not more to it, but there really is. It's a lot more mysterious, this life that we're living, than we give it credit for too much of the time. So my final thought is simply
1: uh, contagiousness. The way, is contagiousness a word? (laughs) The way that our thoughts, our speech, our action are contagious. Energy is contagious. If you're around somebody who's really peaceful and happy, you're going to feel that. If you're around somebody who is really angry or really sad or uh, suicidal, all of these things have an impact. So I just encourage you uh, today and, uh, you know, as, as often as possible To be contagious with good
0: stuff. Be a little bit kinder. Try to spread some good contagions in this world. It can sure use them. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, My guest today is Chelsea Hodson. Her new essay collection is
1: called Tonight I'm Someone Else. It is available now from Henry Holt. It is the official June pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. It is getting all kinds of rave reviews. It's
0: a terrific book, and I'm very pleased to get to shine a light on it here and to share this conversation with you. So here she is, folks. This is Chelsea Hodson, and the book, one more time, is called Tonight I'm Someone Else.
2: Like in... Maggie Nelson's Blewett, um, I think it has a lot of atmosphere and tone, and there's definitely other nonfiction writers that are working with that, but I think about how much filmmakers emphasize that and how sometimes I really find that lacking in literature, uh, especially nonfiction, where people seem preoccupied by the facts and not by just how, I don't know, the tone or how the atmosphere can drive something forward.
1: Um, well, and it's like, you say Maggie Nelson and then I think of Sarah Manguso. Yes. Like there is like this kind of tradition that I would I would lump your book into if I had to.
2: Yeah. Um, yeah. I think all those writers are working with really rich visuals, but also like tightened sentences. And
1: it feels like, I mean, with Sarah, especially there's like talking about concision. Yeah. I feel like, and I guess, you know, bluets is the same, but it takes a lot of work to pare something down. Yeah. and to have it still feel, uh, unified and, uh, like it's not missing anything.
2: Yeah. But at the same time that, um, making something really tight or short allows, I think the reader to fill in certain things that make it even more evocative than if I were to make one paragraph, 10 pages, I actually think in my writing style, that makes it less evocative or mm-hmm. less visual in a way.
1: Well, and I think that, uh, I don't know. It's, it's, it's hard to do. Cause I feel like if you work short, you might be like, yeah, well the reader can just fill it in, but then the reader will read it and be like, yeah, I wanted more. Yeah. It's like getting them to read it and to fill in those blanks on their own, but to also feel like completely, uh, is sated the word satiated. Yeah. You know? Um,
2: yeah. I think some readers would want more, you know, like I think some readers will come to my book and want more because it is, um, you know, I do intentionally leave a lot of things out because omission is more interesting to me. So I think that I'm not the only person that thinks that way.
1: But you're also candid because sometimes I feel like people can be opaque or poetic or elliptical or whatever in uh, nonfiction as a way of of kind of trying to to hide. Mm. It's, it, it, I've found this like where you're writing and you, you're you saying to yourself, like, I'm just going to be really honest. I'm going to lay it on the line yeah. in this work and I'm not going to pull any punches. And then in like draft four, You're sitting there, and you you realize, like, "Oh my god, I'm lying," or "Oh my god, I missed this." Yeah, like it's weird how you can kind of lie to yourself in a book, even Mm -hmm. though even though your intentions are completely otherwise. Yeah, and sometimes I guess I feel like people might hide behind style as a way of not necessarily putting themselves putting themselves out there or grappling with something hard. Or
2: yeah, it's definitely a balance because I think I do hide a little bit. Like I'm. despite how personal some of my writing is, I still consider myself pretty private actually. And I think that it's a balance. So, you know, including certain crucial details and leaving non crucial details out so that certain parts are still mysterious or, um, yeah, just kind of allowing that space to fill with other things. I don't know.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I feel like you're, you have a good, like online persona. It's a little mysterious. (laughs)
2: <laughs> thanks <Right>. yeah
1: <laughs> there are people though i i'm trying to think of anybody else who comes to mind immediately but i feel like you uh as a writer uh, working in an autobiographical vein i think of others that i've read like i tend to like i was saying feel this sense of like oh i know this person mm-hmm. i guess that's natural mm-hmm. and then you like know their little online persona and i feel like that's you but there's also like some mystery. It's not like you're telling telling everybody what you had for breakfast every day.
2: Yeah. Or for instance, nobody knows that I'm in Los Angeles right now.
1: <laughs> nobody knows.
2: I saw one person yesterday for an interview, and that's
1: it. I, didn't you? I think you tweeted something about how people applaud sunsets. Yeah. Is that uh, Los Angeles? That was
2: at the Griffith Observatory.
1: Oh. Okay. So Uh, I was wondering where I thought, like, I was like, is she in Venice, like doing a drum circle? (laughs) Yeah,
2: that's me. That was what I was doing. No, I was at the top of the Griffith Observatory watching the sunset and it was very beautiful but i feel like that's how beautiful it is every night here so it's kind of funny to me that when it it as soon as it went all the way down people just started a round of applause and it was really lovely that's awesome you really don't get that in new york I'll i like that. the,
1: the Griffith the observatory is overcrowded too much of the time but if you catch it on a good day like on a weekday or something yeah it's it such was a lovely a, space it was there.
2: on a weekday and i when i lived here i would go there often and it's very crowded but it's very quiet it's like the beauty of it quiets people, makes right. them very still. So it is very touristy, but it's like manageable in my opinion. You,
1: would you like walk up there or drive up there?
2: Uh, walk. Cause I intentionally got a studio apartment in walking distance of it. Oh. And that's how much I liked it.
1: Wow. There's a trail that leads right up to it.
2: Yeah. There's also just, if you go up Vermont, like just going through the neighborhood and on the road, I kind of like even.
1: Oh, right. Yeah. Okay. Can I take my dog up there off leash?
2: I don't know. I've never taken a dog up there. Ever
1: see a dog running around?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Did you ever see a dog?
1: I just want to like take my dog off leash and just let her just run and tire herself out. I think a small
2: dog you could probably get away with it, but but... there's coyotes. Yeah, and you know I did see a coyote. Where? So,
1: by the way, people uh, listening, Chelsea sent me a photo. (laughs) Like, what was it yesterday or the day before? She's like, I'm in Los Angeles. I saw a coyote like growling at a trash can like good omen can't wait to talk to you. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I feel like things keep happening before interviews that are just really strange. Um and uh but maybe I'm just looking for them now. But yesterday, I mean, I lived in Los Angeles for a couple of years. I would see coyotes at night and they would kind of, you know, look at me and then run away and they're just very shadowy, sketchy creatures at night, but this one was right after the sunset and um this coyote came up to um I, I saw it from a distance and I told my partner, is that, uh, that looks, that can't be a coyote because it had the bushy tail. So I could tell it wasn't a dog, but I couldn't believe it was a coyote. And as we walked up, it indeed was. And it was just kind of standing there. And we realized it was having like a standoff with this woman, cl- like taking the garbage out. And the woman had a dog with her that I didn't realize until we got close because it was really quiet and stoic. So was the, the- dog leashed? The dog was leashed and it's, it's as if the dog was there with her to protect her as if this happens a lot, man. It's kind of like everyone knew what was going on.
1: The coyote wants the garbage.
2: Yeah. So the woman tossed it like a piece of bread or something from the trash or maybe, I don't know what was going on, but she like worked for the city. She was there doing something Oh, okay. and she was trying to manage this coyote that was coming, I think within like 12 feet of her and its whole body curled up the way like cats do you know, and it starts snarling and I've never seen anything like that. Like whenever I see a coyote, it just instantly disappears.
1: They, they, they're apparently around here. I mean, they're all over the state. It's a weird, it's yeah. a weirdly like adaptive species and they're getting bolder. I like, that's what yeah, everyone always that's says. What, is that's there,
2: what occurred to me is like, I haven't lived here in four or five years. Um, and that they're maybe hungrier now.
1: I worry about was, Twiggy. I take her up in the morning yeah. at dawn and I'm like, okay, I let her off leash. And I'm like, Hope you're fast.
2: <laughs> Best of
1: luck. <laughs> Maybe that's irresponsible. But I just feel like it's so there's so many people up there. And you know, there's a mountain lion up there in Griffith Park, right? Yeah. I mean I anything could happen, but any, it's like you gotta play the odds at some point. You can't let this yeah. stuff rule your life.
2: Yeah, I don't know. But it was pretty exciting.
1: So you're back in LA.
2: Back in LA, but
1: this is not book tour. That you're not here when no. you're on tour. This is this is like the calm before the storm.
2: Yeah, I come back in July, so in like two months I'll be back.
1: When in the book launches in June fifth. June fifth. Yeah. Are you excited?
2: I am. Are you yeah. nervous? I'm nervous. I was more nervous last year, like in doing all the final edits and stuff. I'm such a perfectionist. It was really hard for me to let go. Ah. <laughs> I was like, can I just take one more pass? <laughs> like yeah. they did. Um, I think it was called. First pass, and then I was like, When will I get the second pass? And my editor was like, Well, there's usually not a second pass. And I was like, Well, you said it was first, so I assumed there was a second. When's the third and can the fourth? I, can I have a second? <laughs> um, and I think I did, you know, I had a quick turnaround. It's not like I was still doing significant edits, but I was, I started becoming kind of controlling about letting it go and fixing certain things. And then um, I did my own audiobook too. And, um,
1: meaning like, like with,
2: like I read the publisher
1: it, or, or, like they let you read it. Yeah. They let me read it. Got it.
2: And, um, uh, we found, you know, like two very small, but, uh, errors in the book where I'm sure that happens to everyone doing their own audiobook because you just inevitably don't get anything. So kind of through that final edits, last process, I was able to kind of deal with my own control issues of like letting it just be in the world and um
1: but i'd say okay so let me stop you here because i feel like being a person who is perfectionistic with their work there are downsides to that absolutely it can uh lock you up creatively yeah in the drafting phase where you're like because i i sort of suffer from that where i feel like i'm always discarding drafts
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Like this isn't right. This isn't good enough. What do you
2: I... like delete them completely or do you save them? No, as like I just like, one. I just like
1: draft one and then yeah. I just start a new draft Yeah, and I'm like, I'm just constantly doing that. And then there's also the like, you know, relinquishing control. Nothing's ever finished mm-hmm. because you're constantly tweaking. So that's like maybe some of the negatives, but I think the positives are that you're putting everything into it mm-hmm. and you're dotting every I and crossing every T and you're meticulous. Like that's what... I mean, the good artists, that's what they do.
2: Yeah, I think no matter how much talent you have or don't have, it uh, it's usually not a bad thing if you work really, really hard yeah. <laughs> to the point where you're like harming yourself with how hard you're working on it.
1: If you're not self-harming, you're not doing it right.
2: That's kind of my motto. So I <laughs> uh, wouldn't particularly recommend that, but that's just how I am.
1: And this is, I mean, this is the realization of a dream of yours. You wanted to be a published author, yeah. you published by a uh, you know, New York publisher, like this is...
2: Yeah, I care a lot,
1: and it's but it's exciting too. Yeah, you yeah. did it.
2: Yeah, no, it is exciting. So I think like it's just there's so many emotions you feel in finishing it, um, and it because I worked on it for so long, like several years, that it just felt it. It's weird how, in a way, it simultaneously felt both that I would inevitably finish it, and also it would never be done. Right. I for some reason I didn't have an issue reconciling those feelings. It's very strange, but so for it to actually be done uh, was surprising. Like, it doesn't make should, sense. But I got to
1: do this all over again now. And then yeah. you got to start off from like the blank page. Like, I know
2: that doesn't sound like it makes sense because it doesn't. But that's really how I felt. Um, I sort was, of re- I
1: sort of relate to that with yeah. this book that I've been working on for right. the, for the past. 13 years. (laughs) Yeah.
2: So, you know, if it wasn't going to be done, you would have given up by now. So it will be done someday. But at the same time, I'm sure you just feel like, well, it'll just never be done. I
1: don't know. Yeah. It seems like uncertain, but yet I can't stop. Like, you know, it's still there. I still go back to it.
2: Yeah. I think that can be good in a way.
1: It's gonna, at some point, I'm just going to have to finish the thing. But like, I think there's also something to be said for getting it right and like finding... Uh, a, a real sense of comfort with what you've put down. Yeah. And a book will tell you, I mean, if you spend enough time with something, I feel like it tells you sort of when Yeah. it's done, you can't go on forever and ever.
2: Yeah. And it's weird how your relationship to it changes over time. So well, like only once it was an object, like as a galley form for me, did I actually feel like it was officially done?
1: Hmm. Well, you know, it's interesting too, because if you work on something for years and years, which is often the case with books, yeah. you change as a person inevitably. Yeah. And sometimes you can change radically or like the circumstances of your life can change radically, which alters your perspective and changes your relationship with your work. Yeah. Like I've felt that. Um, and so I feel like that can sometimes be a hindrance to getting something done because you're in a certain mood and headspace and, you know, stage of life or whatever, when you start the thing and then like two years in, all of a sudden everything goes sideways and it's like, okay, well, this is a different book now.
2: Yeah. And that's. Um, I think the title of my book kind of speaks to that. So like the different aspects of the self that inevitably show themselves or show, you know, appear to you Right. (laughs) of like when I first started the book or when I would finish a certain essay, you know, like pity the animal, for instance, it feels almost as if someone else wrote it. I barely actually recognize myself in it anymore. So it's strange to have people ask questions of me, the author and the speaker of the essay. And yet it feels very separate from me.
1: Like you're both commenting on some ex- like external third party. <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah. It's, um, yeah,
1: I get that feeling. And like, I yeah. feel too, like sometimes you talk about how slippery the self is, you know, we kind of sort of take it for granted that we know who we are. Like I'm Brad right. and you're Chelsea and I know who I am, but like, it's really not that simple and no. it's really not that singular. Like you're a bunch of different things and it's like, I don't know. We could go on and on, and it would probably uh, make people want to pull their hair out if we start talking about like the <laughs> we, nature. I
2: feel like you could go very like into this, like <laughs> the it, nature of it's self. Like it's a dangerous cliff here.
1: Well, it, but it, I think it's worth pondering. It's like one of the, the most important things to ponder is yeah. like what is a self, right? Like how how is identity formed, and like actually, are we this body? Everything's always changing like millions of cells are dying every minute. Yeah. Like you're constantly sort of renewing. You're you're not this static fixed thing. Right. We're like these fluid uh like rivers of biology. It's like you know it's very uh I think it's like it it can sort of uh, fool the eye.
0: Mhm.
1: And it, and we can fool ourselves internally. Like I I I'll, I'll sometimes do this show. And I'll be talking to somebody and I'll have some opinion, like something will come up. Yeah. Like for instance, I'll give you an example. I was talking to somebody, I forget who it was. This has probably come up more than once. And I was talking about comic book stuff
0: mm-hmm.
1: and you know, it gets a little old, all the comic book movies. Yeah. But then I came out and I had all these like strong opinions about how it's like infantilizing us and <laughs> I can sort of, <laughs> I can sort of feel that way. But then I like thought about it some more and I'm like, I don't really care that much. <laughs> Like, why was I so opinionated? You know, like, I'm, like, I don't even know if I believe myself, you know, right. like, I don't
2: know. Well, that's something I like about essays of like this ability to use the form as a way to document just a line of thought. Like, I'm, I'm really freed by that definition of it. Of, if you can think of an essay as just a document of one person's thinking and changing their mind. Um that's such a small thing that I like the idea of adding all these words and description onto it. Yeah. Um so that kind of relates to what you're saying of like and what I was saying about something I used to care about a lot, and then, you know, a few months, even a year later, I look back on it and think, Oh, why did I feel so strongly about that? Or it's just interesting to me how we change our minds and um you know, uh I think that's why I've for a long time was less interested in plot or traditional narrative than just that idea and kind of getting that idea down. Just how
1: slippery it all is and how like, I like just any kind of feeling of certainty or righteousness in myself. Uh, I sort of have to like train myself to mistrust it. Yeah. I mean, how many, how many times do I have to go through this before I learn? Like (laughs) you're going to change dude. Or like, you know, I feel like with the more, like I feel that emotional, uh, force within me when I'm like stating an opinion where it's, you know, I guess occasionally it it can be really, really solid. Depends what it is, but so much of the time I do that sort of thing. And then later on, I I feel like I regret it or I just find it silly.
2: Yeah. Maybe that's just how you're used to expressing an opinion like that. You just double down on it. Like that's my opinion.
1: Like sometimes, but I'm also on this, I'm on a microphone. And right. I feel like I right. have to, sometimes people will bring something up or I feel like I have to like have an opinion in the moment and in a conversation that that's not all bad. You know what I'm saying? Like some you measure yeah. yourself in the moment and you take yeah. a stand in a conversation and like, uh, the other person sort of like measures themselves against it and then gives you their stand and you find some sort of sure. hopefully happy medium. And like, I don't think it's necessarily, I mean, it seems very natural, but I I'm very susceptible to revising myself.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And in writing, you can do that on your podcast. You can't
0: really do it.
1: (laughs) Well, I just wonder if people (laughs) listen to like all these episodes, how many times have I contradicted myself or, you know, then there's also like, and this occurs in writing as well, but how many repetitions are there? These obsessions that we have, these fixations, the stories we tell ourselves over and over again, the stories we tell other people over and over again, there's only so many. Yeah. And you just sort of go, God, you know, if there's enough of you down on paper or, you know, in some sort of audio file, uh, yeah. Like uh,
2: I really want to hear from that guy that's listening to all of them from beginning to end, (laughs) that guy that you wrote back to a couple episodes ago.
1: I do too. I want somebody to like, like after that process, I would truly be curious to know, like, what's, what's your opinion? Tell me who I am. Yeah, totally. (laughs) Like what
2: a, what a gift if he's able to tell you
1: that would be, yeah. I mean, we'll see. Fingers crossed. It'd be a weird gift. I I'm sorry to tell you this, Brad, but, uh, but, uh you I did help.
2: figure out exactly who you are and it's not good.
1: It's dicey. Um, so, okay. So you, you got to this point, you've gotten to this point where you just about, your book is just about to be in the stores. Mm-hmm. You're just about to go on this book tour. You've published before pity the animal, but that book was published by an indie. It was a 40 page book. Yeah. It was de- you know, it was like a, a debut. Yeah. Uh, but then now you're debuting on like a bigger stage.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: It's more quote unquote official, mm-hmm. right? At least yeah. in the eyes of the public. Um, like, what are your expectations? Do you have any expectations or goals for what you want this to do?
2: I know it sounds unrealistic to say that I don't have many expectations, but I, I genuinely don't feel that I do. I, I feel like I approach these things that are super stressful by dealing with them like I hope for the best, but I don't expect that outcome. Like, I can hope for it, but I don't really... Like, I, I have pretty strong opinions about people that feel like they deserve things. Right. <laughs> um, and I, like, I've like i been thinking a lot about how I have the issue... I have an issue with the word brave in terms of nonfiction. Like, I feel like it's... a in some ways, a super selfish genre. And like, I don't know, like being celebrated for that seems weird. So I, am not really in that situation yet, but like, you know, just seeing how other people, um, go through that phase has been interesting because most of my peers have published before me, like people that I kind of came up with or like I took longer, um, And so I've had the privilege of seeing how other people deal with with their expectations. And I feel like I've learned a lot from that.
1: I was going to say, if you've been, and you live in New York and you have proximity to all this and you have lots of friends in literary circles, that helps you, I think, manage expectations.
2: Yeah. But even even knowing as much as I felt like I did, I mean, there's so many weird things and surprises and conflicts that come up along the way. And also it's weird to be in a time when people are just on the internet about it like only a few people you know only a select number of people have the advanced copies so there's just it feels to me because everyone's tagging me that there's like some talk and some buzz about it which is great but it's a weird time to just feel and read that but not actually have that object in the world right it's like a weird in-between time it's like a
1: preview of coming attractions
2: so i think i'm just trying to appreciate that weirdness and that like in-between time yeah. <laughs> at interim time um before you know what's at, how it actually does, I have yeah. no idea. Yeah. So,
1: That's like a- I
2: say, I can hope for the best, but I actually, I don't actually think I have many expectations. I just, I'm, I love my editor. That's maybe like the most important thing to me. I have, I feel like I trust the person in charge of my book. That's good. Beyond that, you know, it's not super in my control.
1: No, it's just like readers. <laughs> it, got it. it will just
2: be in the world.
1: It'll be in the world, and uh, I think that going in with. The fewer expectations you can have and the more you can try to just enjoy it,
2: yeah, the saner and, you're going to be. <laughs> and I, you know, I had that experience with Pity the Animal where I definitely didn't have any expectations because I was super thrilled to have it out. And Kevin Samsel, the editor at Future Tense, helped me so much and like really believed in me. So I thought, what a great thing, you know, to be working with someone I trust and to have that out in the world. And then it really did bring me a lot of great things. So oh,
1: That's um, very odd for a book of that length.
2: It is. Yeah. It's so not, it's I,
1: not the normal course of events for something like that. I feel like usually you would find like, you know, a, a couple hundred readers.
2: Yeah, and totally. Your and your book
1: did w- 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 you know, way more than that. Yeah. And also like found like influential readers.
2: Yeah. It was very strange.
1: Why um, do you think that is?
2: I'm not really sure. I think, um, I mean, I would hope that it's because. And, and
1: tell listeners who haven't read Pity the Animal sure. what it's about, like you know, just so that people can get yeah, a sense. Yeah, I kind
2: of think of it as an essay that explores the boundaries between or the lines between human, animal, and object. So if my question in the essay is if you can sell all three of those things, then what? how do you distinguish the differences between them? Um, And it's kind of my own exploration through that, through the idea of commodifying an animal, commodifying an object, and then what it means to be a human commodifying their own body. So um, I think I had read, you know, some narratives touching on these ideas, but I, you know, I would hope that maybe... The readership was gained because it was presented in a new way. I don't know if that's true, but that's what I would hope is the reason that people read it. I don't think beyond that I can really know. But I'm I just I remember publishing it and being really scared that no one would relate to it or no one would see themselves in it because it was it felt so I felt so alone in my own feelings about it. And I was very comforted by how many people of all genders uh, said, you know, I see myself in this. The personal is universal. Yeah. So that was a big lesson for me. And um, so in that, my expectations were very low because I just thought, uh, this could go either way. I don't know. I'm kind Maybe of. Maybe that's the secret. Like, the secret, taking, ladies a and gentlemen,
1: here. is to publish 40 page books. <laughs> yeah. Very low expectations. I mean,
2: chapbooks are having a moment, I feel. People do take them seriously. Um,
1: the shorter form. You know, and I mean, it's like, it's sort of, uh, tried at this point, but the shorter form and the age of short attention spans would seem to be a good fit. Yeah,
2: totally. I mean, look at Twitter.
1: Right. You know? And so I feel like short stories, I always say like poetry blends well with the internet in terms of literary form. And, uh, I feel like you can get so much from, and like also these like tweeners, you know, it's like most short stories that are published. It seems like they're like 15, 20 pages, Mm -hmm. sometimes even shorter. Yeah. But you're, you know, then you start getting into like the 40, 50, 60, yeah. 70, you, there's like this weird middle ground where it's like, is it a novella? Right. Is it a chapbook? Is it a, right. you know? and it's sort of, it's its own, uh, weird kind of uh, gray category.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Do you feel like with each of your essays, there is a question that starts your process with it or it, like, is there some sort of similarity from uh, piece to piece in terms of how they're built?
2: I don't usually identify the question until a few drafts in. So I do have to identify it at a certain point, but I don't usually start with it.
1: What do you start with?
2: Um, a variety of things. Sometimes I will think of titles. <laughs> and I usually I, like actually abandon those titles later. But for some reason, I'll get really inspired by the idea of an essay being called a certain thing. And then I will just kind of write from there. Like, what does that essay look like with that title? Mm. Um, and sometimes I will be trying to emulate another form of art. So... Um, even if directly the question isn't this, I'll start it by thinking, what if I wrote an essay that felt like this song or the scene in a film? Like,
1: have you, have you done that? Yeah. Like, give me an example.
2: Um, like I listened to the soundtrack to under the skin. Have you heard that?
1: No. Uh, what, what, what is that? Is that the, the horror com- movie with, uh, yeah, Scarlett, with Scarlett Johansson? Johansson?
2: It's like a sci-fi. I film. saw that. Um, It has this amazing soundtrack written by a 17-year-old composer named Michael Levi. And the soundtrack is so eerie and just kind of plods along. And she says she was inspired by strip club soundtracks of this kind of beat, but slowed down and warped. Is Michael Levi
1: female? Yeah. Oh, okay.
2: And um, it's just very, very strange. Um, And I listened to that a lot when I was writing. And I would have that feeling of like i wish i could write something that felt the way this song makes me feel you yeah. know like so i would Did, just kind of to feed off that a lot? i listened to that one probably a thousand times like i just became obsessed with that one and then i would use other ones as well but that one was my favorite and i remember thinking specifically about that like how could i make the prose feel like this kind of plotting beat um and
1: what's one where you had like a title um, but I guess you just, dis- you discard the titles and then re- retitle them. So,
2: it. yeah, I'm trying to remember Cause yeah, I, always, I just have so many that are swirling. Um, I think the, the title, I'm only a thousand miles away started as a title like that. That one is still in the book. Um, and it's something I wrote to Taylor Hansen um, as fan mail. So I liked the idea of, um, because to me, oh,
1: right. The, the Hansons. Yeah.
2: <laughs> like, um, to me, I
1: was thinking Taylor Hackford when you said that, like who I was like, Taylor Hackford. He's like the director. He's what like, what if I, I wrote to... fan mail to, <laughs> to
2: Taylor <laughs> Hackford? That's no. why I had That
1: confused look on my face. I was like, wow. Sure. Yeah.
2: Sorry. No, the, you know, in the nineties,
1: yeah, those guys. Sure. Um, they're adorable.
2: Yeah. I, re- I specifically remember writing a fan letter to Taylor Hanson and, explaining to him how close I was by saying, I'm only a thousand miles away. And that wasn't (laughs) meant to be funny. It was like, I'm not that far. (laughs) You're in Oklahoma. I'm in Arizona. I feel like we could meet up. We could do this. I was like 10 years old. (laughs) Um, so I liked that idea of, um, a distance feeling extremely short to me versus like the reality of it.
1: But I mean, like, you know, relatively speaking a thousand miles, is no big deal. Yeah. Thanks for agreeing with 10 year old me. (laughs)
2: Um, yeah. So I, I liked that title of, um, of just trying to figure out what that could mean. And that turned into an essay about, um, the way that people look at each other and get closer to each other through this kind of distant gaze or fandom.
1: I'm a watcher. I guess writers, most most people are watchers. I
2: think most writers are watchers. And if they're not, I think they're weird. Yeah. <laughs> like when writers aren't curious or observant, I genuinely, I'm like, how can you write if you don't like, yeah. like when, when I see, when I'm like in a store or in, in a place, I will always see someone that I recognize before they see me, for instance, like I'll always be like, Hey, it's me. You know, like right. I'm very, I think very aware of who is in my periphery.
1: Yeah. And I'm um, always, I'm always like seeing celebrities, not always, but I see celebrities in LA and, uh, it'll be like very, it happens very quickly, yeah. you know, and they just pass by yeah. and I'm always like, Oh, like there's so-and-so.
2: Yeah. I had a weird one yesterday that I want to tell you about Sure, please. <laughs> because I was being interviewed by someone and Joanna Newsom walked by with her baby, Oh, which is interesting to me and poignant to me because I interviewed her when I was 16.
1: Did you really? Yeah.
2: Why? And so I like really am fond of her because she was so nice to me as a teen with a zine. Like it was something that I made myself and she totally didn't have to. Do like it didn't benefit her in any way, I don't think. Of just you know, but I think she was just so sweet. And I was, you say hi to her, I didn't because I was in the middle of an interview uh, and I was so shocked, yeah. So, and also, she was with her baby, so I didn't feel like it was appropriate, I thought it was it would be weird, yeah. Um, and I thought that maybe I would find her in the cafe after, but I walked by and she wasn't there, so it just became this kind of ghostly occurrence. Um, I'm
1: sure she listens to the show, so yeah, hey, Joanna,
2: (laughs) um. But yeah, I just, I have like a very specific memory of her. So it was very strange to see that person like in another particular. Only. It's another element. I know. I know. Like weird things are happening lately.
1: That's good. Is it good?
2: Mostly. I yeah. mean, the snarling
1: coyote aside. There was a snarling coyote. And then what was it? Like You were in a restaurant in New York. I, yeah. Reached. I sat
2: down for an interview at a restaurant in New York and there was a storm cloud above us, but it wasn't raining yet. Nothing was happening. There wasn't even really any wind. It just felt humid. And it was a restaurant where all the windows were open, um, and so it felt very, you know, just like an outdoor restaurant, and so everything was open. And as soon as I sat down with this woman, a huge gust of wind tore through the restaurant, like blowing all our hair back, <laughs> and knocked over several vases, and the, the water just spilled everywhere, and all the place settings just like blew up, like as if a tornado came through, they just went all over the floor, all over the tables, and um, I've never seen anything that violent happen in a restaurant. It was very bizarre. So what do
1: you make of that?
2: I don't know. I'm trying to piece these things together because they just feel, they feel significant. I don't, and I don't know what it's leading. I'm getting
1: a little nervous now sitting here. Like something, there's going to be a meteor, a meteor is going to crash through the roof. Yeah. I don't know.
2: know. It's (laughs) like, maybe I'm just paying more attention to things. Like maybe these things actually happen all the time. And I'm just like looking for signs. Right. I think that that's a real thing where you're like, Like maybe it's coming from anxiety and I just desperately want like a sign of something. So I'm I'm making things into significance where usually I wouldn't. Right. I think that that's maybe what's going on, but But I, I like the possibility of it being something more mystical.
1: I like, I'm open to that. Like it's, it's weird because I I tend to shy away from religious dogma and I can be sort of cynical about like magical stuff and people (laughs) who like believe in like fairies and you know, like like, I, I, I can sort of like roll my eyes but the truth is that uh, I'm open to mystery. I, like, yeah. What the hell do I know? I like
2: that phrasing. I think I'm the same way. Well, I'm mean, usually it... pretty grounded, but I love the idea. And I love the fact that we have so much that we don't know. Right. Like there's so much still being discovered that I I love that about the world.
1: And life is way weirder than we give yes. it credit for. Yes. I think it can be very easy like to just fall into like this hypnosis of... Well, yeah, this is just life and then you die and this is, I live in the city and I drive the car and yeah. I have to, but it's like, wait a minute. Yeah.
2: Don't you want more significance? <laughs> don't you want these things to add up to something? Of but, course we do. But
1: also like we're on this ball, it's covered in water and like, you know, like, it's just so fucking weird.
2: <laughs> I think this is ultimately why we get along. Yeah. <laughs> it's easy for you to start thinking of bodies as like cells, these amorphous cells just existing in the world. And... Well, that's what they are. I know, <laughs> I know Brad. I yeah, know. Yeah.
1: There's uh, like, um, you know, there's also like in physics, there's this phenomenon called phase entanglement, which is, you know, I'm going to explain this really poorly. I don't know
2: this, please.
1: Well, but it's like, basically the reason I'm thinking, like I'm even aware or thinking of the, the, the physics um, parallel is because of the way uh, like crowds can generate a collective energy. Yeah. So if there's like a lot of anger in a crowd. Yeah. Or there's a lot of peace like peacefulness or positivity or joy, like you—you've been to a concert, you've, yeah. You felt that, like you know what I am saying. Like that's palpable to me. It's not yeah. some sort of like uh, pie in the sky theory. Mm-hmm. And so it's like how to explain like the phenomenon of collective energy, yeah. And how to explain when there is some sort of like telepathy going on between like siblings or twins, yeah. or, you know? And so like phase entanglement, if you're trying to look to like the hard sciences for some sort of explanation is worth like a Wikipedia.
2: Okay. I will. I'm yeah. like on my way
1: now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I don't know, but like that sort of stuff, you know, it just sort of passes by. And I think too, I'm always like encouraged when there is a corollary between the hard sciences and something that might seem mystical or that gets talked about in an abstract way mm-hmm. and you go, wait a minute, like there might actually be an explanation for this. And yeah. likewise with, um, uh, what's like the, the other like hard science example that I was thinking of, it has to do with like real, like the really smallest, is it quarks? I don't really Dark know. Dark matter. Like any, anyway, it's that sort of stuff. Like yeah. you start to drill down into that science and it starts to make, um, sense of some of the mystical aspects of life that I'm willing to buy into.
2: Yeah. And I had that experience encountering Marina Abramovich's work. And that's why I started with writing about it in Pity the Animal of the artist is present performance, where it's nothing but her body across the, you know, it used to be a table, but then the table was removed of just like two chairs facing each other, looking in each other's eyes. And I've done experiments with this, like with other performance artists, or, um, I've, I had a friend who I, i did this with for a very long period of time we would do it on and off for six hours straight to just as an experiment just to look at each other just to experiment to see what happened for six hours yeah what happened uh we i started hallucinating wildly which i'm apparently apt to do I, i can hallucinate doing the mutual gaze in like 10 minutes um and a lot of people have that experience that's not uncommon but it's not like there's no set result of it
1: what does a hallucination mean
2: so, for instance, I think around, because we weren't really looking at a clock, we had a timer, <laughs> but um, I think around the five-hour mark, her face became translucent to me, and I could see like a thunderstorm occurring inside her head, where I could see parts of it were uh, transparent and parts of it were opaque, and I could see all these lights inside of her and so all these you're, clouds. So, you're
1: sitting across from her at a table. Very yeah. simple setting. Yeah. And the project is to just look into each other's eyes for six hours.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You just did this as an experiment. Yeah. Wow.
2: And I found someone to do it with me. I was going to say, so,
1: that's a lucky thing to yeah. find two people willing to do that. But that's also, that that's right up my alley. Like that's uh, a, yeah. it's a meditation.
2: Yeah. It was, um, it just really, it really did help my writing in a way too. And I think that was my hope is mm-hmm. that I would learn something from it. Um, about the power of one physical body and what happens when you just try a very simple experiment with another person. But I think, I mean, they are doing certain neurological experiments on eye contact, on like what that means and uh-huh. what that does to you. Well, it's very strange.
1: What? Well, yeah. What have you? I mean, do you know about these studies? Like, I mean, what it's always
2: it- changing. There's always new research, but there's um, definitely like an energy that comes from it that's not just. New agey. So when you're, so when you're (laughs) sitting there,
1: you're you're looking right into each other's eyes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Jesus. Um, the other thing that it makes me think of like meditatively is like for six hours, like it's one thing to sit there for a half an hour. Yeah. But that length of time, uh, you kind of, you'll exhaust yourself at some point, your normal defenses and distractions and thought processes. Yeah. You sort of burn yourself out and you burn yourself out. I would imagine like two hours in
2: it's strange though. Cause you lose track of time. Like you, uh, you I've, we both had the experience where we felt as if we could keep going. Mm. Like you kind of, it's kind of similar to my experience with running. I'm not a great runner, but I have like run five K's and stuff where after a certain point I can just keep going, but it's super hard for the first two thirds or something. Well, um,
1: I, uh, there's this book I read once called the woman in a cave. It's by Vicky McKenzie, but it's about this Buddhist nun named Tenzin Palmo. She's mm-hmm. like the first English woman to become an ordained like Tibetan Buddhist nun. Okay. And uh, so she's English, but she's, you know, she's lived, she's mostly lived in like, uh, like you know, India, Nepal or something like that for her life. Mm-hmm. And she lived in a cave at like 17,000 feet or something like that for 12 years by herself.
2: Oh my God. And
1: she slept in like a meditation box, like sitting up
2: whoa. <laughs> yeah. So I mean like, <laughs> I need to read that
1: book. Yeah. I mean, it's like this incredible, you're, and you, you think of it and you're just like, holy hell, oh like God. that sounds gnarly and austere. And yet she talks about it. She's like, it was the happiest time of my life and it went really fast. Yeah. And yeah. I'm like, okay. I'm That's like, so interesting. It's, sa- it's sort of a similar effect though.
2: No, it is. Yeah. And I, I, um, I conduct this mutual gaze for seven minutes at the workshop. I teach with Giancarlo, um, Di Trapano in, uh, in Italy.
1: Morse tua vita? Yeah. <laughs> what is this? Cause I'm always seeing this, uh, on Twitter. Cause I follow Gian and I follow you and it's very like romantic seeming. Like go to Rome and it is know,
2: romantic. Yeah.
1: Morse tua vita.
2: Yeah. Um, what does that even mean? Well, Morse tua vita mea, um, uh, means your death, my life. Oh, okay. So it's like a battle cry. Oh. Um, but Giancarlo and I, You know just think it sounds cool and i think it applies to writing of like the sacrifices you make in writing and um not necessarily you versus me but i kind of like that for the for the workshop sake of just like you know uh i take writing super seriously and i don't consider it a hobby so i like that idea for a workshop like you're here to kind of work or die like it's like really like it's that serious where does
1: everybody stay
2: in um, the villa, uh, villa di Trapano, which is from Giancarlo's family. So, so he he lives in Rome, but there's this villa in rural Italy called Setze. So it's 90 minutes from Rome. And
1: is it big enough to house everybody? Like you got how many yeah. people are there?
2: So Giancarlo and I and his husband Giuseppe stay at an apartment on the grounds, but nearby. And the students have this gorgeous villa.
1: And are people like, I feel like people are like, there's like relationships forming no, Is there an intrigue no, like that? No
2: relationships form have formed. Um,
1: there needs to be a book written about this. I hope, like, I
2: hope one of the students will write yeah, it. Yeah, I
1: was going to say, it feels like, uh, what, what am I, it's like uh, the talented Mr. Ripley or something. Like
2: yeah, it, it does have that vibe, actually. Yeah. And that's kind of like maybe where the title plays in. Yeah. Um, but so I've done this mutual gaze there. So of these people that are like taken out of their home environments and kind of thrust into this writing workshop After a few days of kind of warming up with each other and, you know, workshopping each other and we go on these field trips together, I'll do a lecture on writing about the body and then be like, okay, so, you know, after reading all these things about the physical body and being in your body and what you're seeing, um, I want to try this mutual gaze. And so I don't force people to do it, but everyone ends up doing it usually. And so we, we line up and stand up about three feet across from each other. And then I set a timer for seven minutes because it's it gets intense fast. So usually there's one pair that doesn't really have a, a super strong sensation. Um, how close
1: do you have to be for this to get intense?
2: It's like about three feet from each other.
1: Oh, so you can like...
2: And you can sit, but I haven't do standing since it's only seven minutes. I feel right. like there's something more intense about it. And I had a student this time that was a little skeptical. He was like, oh, I don't know if this is going to work. And I was like, well, I'll be your partner. Let's see how it goes. <laughs> and he was like crying at the end and it was like you became my mother you like i could just see your face became my mother exactly so i mean i'm kind of going on a tangent here but i think that in paying attention to these really small physical sensations i think that that is super interesting to me and like just encapsulates so much mystery of like what we're even capable of that we don't even pay attention to
1: and how like out of our bodies we often are yeah because we're up in our heads yeah. You know, and like, if you start to actually pay attention to your body internally, like
2: mm-hmm. you just feel
1: yourself from the inside out. Yeah. That feels good.
2: Yeah. I totally. like that. Yeah. You
1: know, and like, you start to feel the sense of grounding and then you can do your breathing and you pay attention to that and you sort of, you know, it creates a sort of uh, unifying effect where you feel yeah. like you, you, you reintegrate. Right. I mean, not to get too woo woo, but. No.
2: Do you regularly meditate? Yeah. Yeah, you do. Like, so I'm, like twice a day, like.
1: Yeah. I would. Like I would live in a cave. You would. Like, I like to meditate. Yeah. Oh, I believe lot. that. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I believe that you could.
1: <laughs> I believe that you would live at 17,000 feet, sleep in a box, sitting up, but no, I you just, probably uh, a great book. <laughs> I find the process really, uh, enriching and just like endlessly fascinating. Yeah. You know, it's like, wow, you really see your own, uh, like the, just the, uh, slipperiness of your own physical self and the yeah. craziness of your own mind and. There's a lot to unpack in all of us, you know, and I I think that for me, you know, I don't do therapy. I'm not on any drugs for me. It's like meditation and exercise and diet. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. Like without it, I'm a different human being. And 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 if I miss, like I haven't missed the day and a really long time but like even if i miss like an evening meditation i notice it
2: yeah like, i took a class on meditation but for for how much i pay attention to this stuff i haven't successfully been able to integrate it into my daily routine i just
1: the hardest part. i just one haven't made parts, it a
2: priority i guess well
1: yeah i mean it's and it's not for everybody yeah like you know like that's the other thing is that like it's uh it's for me but it's yeah maybe not for you or maybe not for like my wife doesn't meditate yeah and like for a while i was like you know, this is really helping me. Like, what if we both did this? And we could be in, it? but then it's like, you know what? She's got to find her own thing.
2: Yeah. Like maybe yeah. she doesn't need it. Right.
1: Maybe I need it. Right. You know? And, uh, but like the, one of the like Buddhist principles of uh, meditation, like the f- foundational or whatever is, uh, I think it's pronounced shamatha, which is stopping.
2: Mm, yeah,
1: it's really fucking hard to stop. Yeah. That's what you got to do. That's
2: my issue. Yeah. You, I, lo- I love to go from thing to thing because it just fills my day and I feel productive you and roll I can up, just keep going. Yeah. You
1: get up out of bed yeah. and like you grab your phone and then you're yeah. checking Twitter and right. it's like, but like you got to stop. Yeah. And I will sit there uh, like it's especially in the evening. Cause I've been going all day. Mm-hmm. The evening meditation's harder. Like first thing in the morning, as long as you start to get into a routine, you just go to the cushion. Yeah. Then right. that's easier. But then like you know, five thirty, six o'clock, six thirty at night. Yeah, you get home, or you you know you've been working all day. You've been on the phone, you've been on the internet, and then you have to stop. Yeah, and there is an enormous habit energy or internal force that I feel that is just like churning, like it just wants to keep going. It's yeah. like it wants well, to develop. It's devour. so American. It's like, so keep going. It's so yeah. It's so human, though. It's like really just like yeah. like minds are crazy and relentless, and they have no pride. Like, mm-hmm. you know, like the yeah. mind will just do anything. Right. And, uh, at some point though, like you befriended a little, like not again, I sound sort of, uh, eye rolly, but like it, it becomes sort of amusing. You're like, wow, I'm fucking nuts. You know? <laughs> like, like this thing. I'm in stopping my stopping so <laughs> hard right now. <laughs> yeah. Or or just like, uh, yeah, you just like, that's how I would feel. You get like, you can lose yourself, you know, like you're trying to just Inhale, exhale. Like that's all I want to be thinking. Like I don't want to be entertaining thoughts or mind movies or uh, litigating past things or future things. Yeah. You know. And you'll be following your breathing, and then like twelve minutes later, you'll be like, "Holy fucking shit!" Like yeah. I just fell into uh, fantasy about like you know backpacking around Europe or living in a cave, and like then I was like getting into a fight with the train conductor. And, yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like, like <laughs> where the like how did yeah, I get on that I train? Get. You know, it's
2: well, really amazing. It's
1: powerful, and I don't know. It's helpful to me just because I think I'm susceptible, maybe more so than others, to being distracted or to uh, letting my uh, negative emotions carry me away.
2: Yeah, and in, in freelancing for so many years of my adult life, I've um, I think just been addicted to checking my email in order to be a good personal assistant, managing editor, things like that of the roles that I've had that require me to be fully available, like mm. all the time. Yeah. So I think it's still become really hard for me to turn off in that way. Airplane so mode. it's like a daily airplane. I like can't do it. Like I it's like <laughs> a struggle. Like I have airplane. to start training myself to really it's hard. do that, I think. Um, well
1: isn't it and that's the irony of these phones is that like, you know, they like the internet and the phone, like it's supposed to be this freeing thing that allows you to work anywhere basically means you're always working.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I went to, um, the McDowell colony for the first time. That was my first residency experience a couple months ago. And that was very interesting to me where I was like, okay, I actually think I do write better in this type of situation where the cell phone reception is very limited. And, um, you have this place all to yourself. It was honestly very scary <laughs> to me to be in the middle of the woods because I'm always super urban and like amongst a lot of people. That, yeah. Um, I think that fear actually helped me have good ideas too.
1: Kept you on like on edge. Yeah,
2: that's, it did. That's good. Yeah.
1: You're like, maybe I should have brought some pepper spray or something.
2: Well, not that. It was like I was hearing the craziest sounds in my cabin only at night. So it didn't seem structural to me. It seemed like something at night was. I don't know. Alive rats. rats. And there, well, I did think that. Yes. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not like a ghost (laughs) finally. But, um, but there was a plaque outside of the cabin that I didn't see until like the third day that said like here worked Edwin Arlington Robinson, you know, from this summer to this summer. He worked there every summer for like 10, 15 years or something. And then the quote like that he, that they're remembering him by is I will have more to say when I am dead. (laughs) And I really was into that.
1: So basically people, <laughs> really? Chelsea Hodson is haunted. Like everywhere she I, goes, there <laughs> are omens.
2: I think, I think the summary is just that I'm always looking for these things. Like I'm desperate for what we were talking about, like mystery but you're also, things uh, that are unexplained. I love things that are unexplained.
1: Yeah. And you're noticing. Sometimes you got, I think you got to be open to things to see them or you have to like be awake. You, yeah. can, you can miss it. Yeah. You know, you could have just been snoozing right through that.
2: Yeah. But I I wonder about that, about like that scenario of like, why did I, because I think I had decent ideas there. I was like excited about writing again and like I felt invigorated being there. And I think um, there was some aspect of that, just uncertainty of like, I don't know, uh, you know, how safe it is out here or like, like, of course it was safe, but it just, it had this heightened sense about it.
1: There should be a horror movie. That like it's called like, you there know, really should. Yado.
2: <laughs> yeah, totally. Totally.
1: The colony. Um, totally. But you know, you get out there into nature or into a more rural setting and you're out of the urban environment. Your cell phone doesn't work. I don't know what the internet situation is there. Could you connect right there in your room? Was there Wi-Fi?
2: um, like my phone was pretty good, unfortunately. Oh. <laughs> like Verizon, for some reason, <laughs> has service there. Yeah. But for most everyone else, it, you would have to go to the library, so you could still access everything. But there was like a a specific Wi-Fi spot,
1: like a barrier to entry.
2: Yeah, which yeah. is good
1: because yeah, because it, it was
2: very far too, and it was extremely cold. So okay. you didn't really like want to just go up to the library to check your email.
1: Did you get quiet though? Like you know what I'm saying? Like do you get like like because I think like for me anyway, I write so much better, and I can f- I can actually physically. And emotionally, like feel it where I'm like, okay, I'm quiet. Like like all the noise of my life, whatever it is, like circumstantially, Mm -hmm. the kids are at school or.
2: Yeah. I think that's the idea of a place like that. So it, it, I did really have that experience there. And, um, it was so quiet that I started playing the piano there. (laughs) (laughs) Like I, I played, I played piano as a kid, but I haven't had access to one in a decade or so. And, um, there was a piano in my room and I started playing it.
1: How, how, because how it
2: you, was so, what, what's that? Did sir? it come
1: back to you? Did, could you do it? Yeah.
2: Yeah. I wrote some songs there.
1: <laughs> did you really? Can yeah. you sing? Yeah. Can I you do. really? Yeah. Do you ever sing like?
2: I'm, I'm kind of like, I'd like to be less private about this part of myself. I don't know why I'm very shy about it. I think it must have to do with my controlling perfectionist side where I feel like. I'm a better writer than I am a singer, like singer songwriter. Sing no, absolutely not. <laughs>
1: what if I just n- broke
2: out in song? I've had
1: people say that. I mean, I've had like people with vocal talent, you know, here on a, you know handful of occasions. I've always asked that question. I feel like, and I've never gotten a taker. No one's ever sang for me.
2: I mean, to ask a writer to do something on command is like a very dangerous situation. It's like going to inevitably
1: be re- really bad. Let me ask you this: Can you compare your voice, your singing voice, to somebody? Like, if we wanted to know what you might sound like theoretically,
2: um, I don't, I don't really know. Um, Nico? No, not like Nico. Maybe like a cat power vibe. Okay. Uh, like so. So I did a trailer for my chapbook pity the animal that's on my website is that and the one I, that
1: like where the hand on the bed yeah. That, yeah
2: um the song is a cover of oingo boingo dead man's party do you know that original song of course so i say i did a cover of it for that video
1: and that's your voice. That's my voice and my not,
2: and my guitar playing.
1: I have not heard... Or I haven't seen the trailer in a long time, but I remember watching it, and I, but I was not aware that that was you.
2: Yeah. And it's not my song, but I covered it. So I slowed it way down so and made Boingo, it creepy. So
1: go Boingo was getting all the royalties from uh, Chelsea's Definitely,
2: <laughs> Definitely. Um, so that was like a... But like th- that's the reaction I get usually when people are like, "What does it sound like?" I was like, "Well, you saw the trailer," and they're like, "Oh, I didn't know that was you." And I'd say Cat Power because Sarah Manguso thought it was a Cat Power song. Oh, so well, and I, I love Cat Power, I, so that's I, probably where it comes from. She's I just great. like try to be like her. Um, that's high praise. Yeah.
1: No one ever told me I sounded like Cat Power.
2: <laughs> <laughs> you have your own special voice. I sound Brad. like a cat. <laughs> yeah. Um,
1: a dying cat.
2: But yeah, just talking about quiet at the residency. Like I just felt so quiet actually that I want, I longed to um, make noise. Anyway. Well,
1: especially coming from an urban environment, especially yeah. like New York, where it's like so yeah. dense and there's so much noise. And to yeah. suddenly be in a natural environment setting can be jarring.
2: Yeah. And I know the stuff, it sounds a little cliche, like, oh, New York's so noisy. Oh, I had this great idea in a cabin, but like, it was real for me. So well, <laughs> I don't know what to do with that besides the- it being like a true cliche for me.
1: I think sometimes people though will go from, because some people like the noise, you know, I think look, when you're in the noise, it can allow you to sort of hide from yourself sometimes. And I'm not
2: like that. I hate the noise of New York right now. You like, I'm? it's like, it's grating on me. I, I can't stand it like, anymore. I go
1: hiking in the morning. Like I'm at the point now, because like, I like living in a city but maybe less so than I did 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. I think the older I get, the more I'm like, I can't, I'm like an old person. Like I just want to be in the country.
2: Yeah. That's how I feel. Yeah. You I'm know, like you. I just
1: want some, I want like some space in the yard and a quiet, but like, you know, I also like what the city offers. Um, you know, I go back and forth. I'm not all one way, but I find that, uh, you know, I, I will get up at four 30 in the morning so I can get to the hiking trail early enough that I don't wow. have to deal with people. Yeah. Cause I then I can that. have like a quasi nature experience and like, otherwise you go out and it's like a city hiking trail and you see on the trail like 150 people in the course of an hour and a half hike. Yeah. And it's like, okay, I might as well just be at the fucking <laughs> Grove at this point. <laughs> <Yeah.
2: laughs> so, well, you don't like the Grove?
1: Yeah, no, I love the Grove. The dancing <laughs> waters are, uh, they're everything to me, but. Just go I, there and write. Just yeah. meditate, man. <laughs> just sit at one of those, like, you just know, disnified like, Italian cafes. <laughs>
2: disney You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Just, see a celebrity. Too. See, yeah.
1: I, the weirdest thing is, like, weirdest celebrity setting I ever had at The Grove is I saw Beck.
2: <laughs> that and is a weird one. For
1: people who are uh, listening who don't have context, The Grove is, like, an outdoor shopping mall in Los Angeles where they shoot, I want to say, like, Access Hollywood. I forget what yeah, show. Yeah, I kind of forget. But it's, like, Entertainment T- Tonight or one of these shows, yeah. like, when they're, they're outdoors... They're like we're at the Grove. And it, <laughs> it really does feel like uh, like a faux city, like block, and yeah, they have really Disney. hyped
2: it up. Like it's not that special.
1: It's like it, it's basically like a capitalist theme park. They have a trolley. It's and then you, but like it's one of those places, especially when I used to live closer to it, where I would like go there like way too frequently. And <laughs> like there's a,
2: to pick up some things or to like hang out.
1: Just to hang out, because like when my daughter was two, <laughs> like it's like a little playpen.
2: Oh right. They can yeah. like run I mean, around a walk, yeah.
1: Yeah. And like there's a there's pedestrian traffic, so you feel like there's for a person who likes to watch in right. Los Angeles there's not as much pedestrian traffic.
2: Right. Everyone's yeah. in
1: their cars. Yeah. So you would go there and there'd just be like the people walking around, but it's you know it grates on you yeah it drains your soul of something it's vital. interesting
2: to me that you are so naturally curious like you have a podcast just so you can ask people questions right yeah. but but you don't like you want to be in, in a cave like in the middle no. yeah. i like how those things can coexist because that's kind of this... yeah that's kind of how i feel where it's like you want a controlled meaningful one-on-one interaction you don't want to like be amongst you know strangers or just like a, a bunch of noise i guess or a lot but, of noise and voices
1: yes I'm so happy to hear you say this because it's been on my mind a lot. Uh, People don't often recognize that, but like this garage is my cave. Right. And these conversations that I have are to a certain degree, anyway, my social life. Right. And, you know, I do worry that there's a control issue happening. Because it's like, wow, this is really on my terms. Like, you come to my house, <laughs> we're on the record. i ask you my uh, questions. Uh, yeah, there's microphones. I'm in the role of the interviewer. But, like, I, it's also a conversation. Like, you can ask me questions. Yeah. Like, it's not, like a, it's not just like a rote interview with, like, an enumerated list of I questions. Don't, I
2: don't feel taken hostage. It's okay.
1: Yeah. <laughs> you don't have to apologize. Chelsea is chained to the desk right now, people. <laughs> it's uh, okay. But uh, the conversations are, an order of magnitude, more interesting to me. Than the conversations I would normally have, not always, but normally yeah. in an ordinary social setting, like a friend's house party, you go to these things, right. even if there's like 20 people, like everything feels way too fast for me and everybody's got their phone and mm-hmm. every mm-hmm. like the phone is a real problem in terms yeah. of meaningful social interaction. It's a real problem in terms of meaningful conversation. And then the other thing is that the microphones keep us tethered. You can't move around. Right. They anchor you. So we have no... Like, we're stuck here. Yeah. It's sort of like your fixed gaze thing.
2: Yeah, it is. Like, we
1: have to hang out. Yeah. You know?
2: Well, and I think just because there's an artifice of, like, an interview doesn't mean the conversation is artificial or superficial. Like, a meaningful thing can come out of those constraints.
1: Right. And also, like, we're in my home. Right. We're not in, like, a radio studio. There's none of the uh, accoutrement of like traditional media, right. except for the microphones. Right. But I think that that that's part of what, like, this is technology that I get, I get excited about cause it uh, allows me to do this, Right? you know, and that's kind of cool. But I think that there's an informality to just like sort of hanging out in somebody's house or garage or whatever. Yeah. Um, but I am just, I guess I'm just starved for this. That's why I keep doing it. Yeah. You know? And I think that, you know, a similar, there's a similar effect happening when somebody writes, you know, a desire for, um, a meaningful experience of life or, um, trying to make sense of experiences one has had interpersonally Yeah, as opposed to and just yeah. that superficial chatty, like I, it's fun to bullshit with people, but I often find myself like anxious. Isn't quite the right word, but when I'm at like social gatherings and it's happening, I can function. It's not like I have to go like cower in the corner, but mm-hmm. I just feel like, can, do you want to just like go off to the side so we can right. actually have a conversation? Let's have a one-on-one. Yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. You're like, do you mind if I record you? <laughs> I am it's wearing my thing. W- I'm wearing a wire. <laughs> it's my so. thing. <laughs> um, yeah. And like talking about constraints, like I use that a lot in writing. I don't know if you do, of like you set up a rule for yourself so that you feel contained and safe in a way. Yeah. And then you can really go off so to say i was just
1: like how did like give me an give me like a concrete example of that
2: like i'll use time a lot as just an arbitrary constraint so like if i feel really afraid of something i'm writing for instance i'll be like okay i'm just gonna start moving my fingers and i can't stop them for a half hour like i have to just keep going keep writing yeah even if even if they're not even really sentences i'm just going
1: you typing yeah you don't handwrite? i usually
2: type yeah yeah on a computer correct you're
1: yeah. not on like an antique typewriter no not. i'm
2: not that's not my style i actually <laughs> like technology <laughs> um
1: you write on your phone
2: i don't hardly ever i
1: don't like typing on my phone
2: i don't either um
1: i'm not fast enough it's just annoying and the voice command like a voice to text never works for me like
2: yeah it, i heard melissa broder did that for her novel like, and that fascinated me i was she, like she's huh. got
1: she's got it like melissa's got a, like, a rare talent like her ability yeah, to just like, that. to just go from like brain to page and to like verbalize and type, you know, like people, yeah, I,
2: made a, I read her book before I learned that. And that I was like, Oh, I can see how that would work. I don't think it would work for me though. Maybe first draft. Like I'm always looking for new techniques. So I feel like I might try it. Like I, I like that. That's how she wrote her book. I think it's really cool. Um, but I like typing because I can also close my eyes too. So I can type without looking at it didn't you
1: blindfold yourself
2: yeah i do i do do that
1: as like another form of constraint
2: yeah i don't do that too frequently but sometimes if i'm starting a brand new piece or i'm just writing about something that feels uncomfortable which it often does i will do that as a way of refusing to um overthink the sentences. Cause what I was saying about like one sentence leading to the next, sometimes that just isn't the right way to approach an idea. If you're trying to do it more instinctually, I think. So instead of really focusing on how one thing is moving to the next, moving to the next, it's more, I think I can maybe access a more like fluid narrative or line of thought. If I'm just not paying attention to it at all. And it's you just can't coming. see, you
1: can't see that what precedes it. You can't see.
2: Right. Right. That makes sense. Um,
1: well, yeah, and, you know so, yeah I'm like,
2: always coming up with like new tricks to use and kind of to fool myself almost
1: well yeah and also just to like play against you know I remember uh, reading a, like, it was a Jack white I want to say who made me think along these lines because mm. he's all into limitations like he'll set a color palette for himself
2: right you know right. it's like
1: I can only use red white and black or in this album it's yellow black and you know and then he'll be like I can only have uh, drums and a guitar mm-hmm. no bass mm-hmm. and, you know so he's got yeah like, that's his whole thing. Yeah. And uh, like, I think that you can come up with interesting, creative, uh, decision-making processes and outputs because you've given yourself like a box to work within.
2: Yeah. It's almost like giving your brain a task so that you can surprise yourself. I think I should do that
1: on this podcast.
2: You should. Yeah. I'm
1: going to blindfold myself. (laughs) Yeah.
2: That's not terrifying at all. (laughs) Um, (laughs)
1: I edited, the, I'm going to edit this uh, episode with a ball gag in my mouth oh, so that God. I cannot talk too much in the monologue.
2: Too much in the monologue. <laughs> well, you know, whatever works. That's a horrifying visual. Whatever I'm sorry, works. I put, I'm sorry I even said I that. I can't look at you
0: anymore. <laughs> um. uh,
1: so, okay. So nonfiction is what you've done so far. Yeah. Essays. Is yeah. this your thing? Like, are you, are you going to go to fiction? Or are you just like, you know what? I have a project that I'm working on. I can see the long arc of my career. I, you know, what I'm saying how clear of a vision yeah. do you have for yourself creatively.
2: Um, I loved working within the constraint of essays of kind of staying true to what I remembered and what my what I consider my life to be, um, and expanding on that and using kind of unusual juxtapositions with outside sources. Like I, I really was inspired by that form, and but almost by doing it, the form I think freed me from seeing the distinctions between genre like i just started seeing my essays as stories and um I, I just kind of eventually got over this idea that one that like if you're good at one thing you can't do another thing because i just thought oh well essays are my thing i guess i'll just be a non-fiction writer um but i mainly fluid. read novels like i just uh, for a while i was reading fiction or nonfiction, but i started really liking I don't know the idea of writing a novel. And so I started a novel.
1: Oh, you did? Yeah. Interesting. Is it autobiographical? No, it's not. It's a completely removed from. Yeah. I
2: think it's very different. Hmm. So, um, I'm not sure how it'll go, but I hope. Okay. That's what you're working on now. Mm -hmm.
1: How far in are you?
2: I feel like I wrote a third of a first draft.
1: Hmm. That's a good place to be, especially as like a book is coming out.
2: I had this idea that I could do a full draft, even if it was bad, before the book came out, and it just didn't happen. But I'm at peace with that.
1: Well, you know, a third is still good.
2: Things just come up, but I was like, I'm going to race through it so that I can have it to return to, and I think that would be the dream scenario. But that's just not how it goes.
1: I think too, like you know, do you set yourself like a word count or anything?
2: I don't really. You don't. Uh, when I was in school, I had to I had to come up with 20 pages of new work every month. Um, and that was a lot for me, so that was my constraint of just like. Well,
1: that'll do it though. You have like yeah. a, you have an external yeah. discipline so like, I enforcement think mechanism.
2: Doing that helped me, but I don't. I haven't still been doing that. Like I'm, I'm a believer in uh, letting something kind of live inside you until it's just like okay, now I have to write it down.
1: My book has been living inside me for a long time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well,
2: there's a ba- like there's a balance between those modes. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, um, but. I'm not a, I, you, I mean, I've experimented with daily writing, but I'm not sure that I believe in it.
1: So yeah. What does your, what does your writing routine look like? Are you, you're not every day.
2: I'm not every day.
1: You're when you feel like it.
2: It's like a, it's just a mix between the two. It's like, if I, I don't usually feel like writing, to be honest. I like, I mean, I've, I forget who said this, but I'm definitely not the first person to say this of like, I like having written, not, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the thing, that's how everyone feels. But, um.
1: I like having podcasted.
2: You know? Right. <laughs> not podcasting. It's
1: an, it's an incredible feeling to have podcasted. <laughs> Most of you out there have never felt it.
2: Yeah. I feel yeah. bad. I feel
0: sorry for you. I feel
2: sorry. It's not too late though. <laughs> I'm going to start my own compete with you. Um, uh, yeah, so it's it's just a mix. I think um I like setting aside I think ideally it would be like three hours in a day to really get into something, but, um, I, I have no like official ritual or process that doesn't have to happen in the
1: morning. You seem sort of like a night writer, but no, you're morning.
2: I'm morning actually. Okay. Um, because I think my voice very quickly turns into like a diary, like very boring, like today I did this or like, just even if it's fiction, like just very ordinary, um, language. And I think in the morning I'm able to access some Weirder side of my language. Do you of, go? Do
1: you go from bed to the keyboard? Yeah. You don't go like wake uh, up, go to the gym, come home. Do, no, you know, it's like from bed to the no. keyboard. No,
2: I really like working out at night. That's like my thing. But I, um, out at if night. I work out in the morning, I'm like exhausted. Hmm. So I can't. I, I don't feel like invigorated by exercise. I feel like Depleted. ready to go to sleep. <laughs> which see, is I have nice, to wake but... up
1: with it. I have to like. I have to like shake out the cobwebs or something. But I don't sleep enough. You know, especially lately, like the last. Yeah. I've been in a bad way for like three months, like
2: self-imposed or children. Just,
1: no, just, I mean, both, but sort of just like go to bed at 11, wake up at two 30 or three and maybe kind of drift back off to sleep, get out of bed at five, like crazy, oh, like little, that's hard. Yeah. But, uh, then I have but if I go exercise and then I have like, you know, some caffeine, I'm good. Yeah. Or like relatively good.
2: Yeah. That's good. I, I mean, mean, yeah.
1: Was it, look, how am I doing? I mean, <laughs> look
2: at how good I am. Aren't I good?
1: I'm functional. I'm <laughs> stringing sentences together. You know. Uh, so you've got the you got the book uh, in June. You uh, you sold it to what is it? Holt.
2: Holt. Yeah, Henry Holt.
1: And you, you had you had an agent right after Pity the Animal, right? Yeah. So Pity the Animal helped you get an agent, correct? And then you had this collection sort of in the works as Pity the Animal was uh, making its mark. And then you finished it, you handed it off to your agent. And how did the sales process go?
2: Um, I had meetings with certain editors and then that's um, always a good sign. Yeah. So uh, there's multiple, that interests. was actually new to me. Like as much as I felt like I knew about publishing, I wasn't actually aware of what an editor meeting was. <laughs> so that was a little scary, but
1: fun. did pity the animal, uh, help open doors? Like had, had editors who were meeting with you read that? I mean, was that part of the,
2: some of them had, yeah. Uh, most of them hadn't. It was still, it's like, it had a, almost like a cult, uh, audience, but it was very indie. Like people at AWP had read it. Right. But not everyone in like New York is like, what is that? It's like a little book that fits in your pocket. Right. Right. (laughs) Like, like, yeah. yeah, (laughs) it is. (laughs) It worked. Um, so that definitely helped open doors for me. And like I said, got me an agent. So, um. Who's your agent? Well, now it's Monika Woods. So the agent I got was her colleague and she quit publishing. Oh, so she walked away. She walked away. <laughs>
1: Mic drop. What's she doing now? Do you know? I'm not sure. Oh.
2: I'm not sure. So
1: Monica, I thought her name was Monica.
2: Monica. It's
1: Monica. Yeah. She represents a couple of people, a couple she, of buddies yeah, of mine. She
2: has what I call an army of, uh, like strong, uh, like mainly female New York writers. I
1: was going to say, a lot do, of people. does she represent Mira? Yeah. Okay. She and does. then Chelsea. Yeah. Martin. Mm-hmm. Okay. So yeah, she's got good taste.
2: Thanks. Yeah. I think (laughs) think she, I think she does.
1: Well, no, but I feel like, you know, there are certain editors and certain agents who really have their ear to the ground in a smart way. And I, I recognize it just because I'm in, this is the flow of information on my, of my day for the past 15 years, right? you know, and I think like, I'm not super expert on it, but when you're, when you're watching that stream, it's amazing to me, uh, how it can seem like a lot of editors and agents are blind to it. And then when mm-hmm. I see an agent, like based on who their clients are, mm-hmm. I'm like, Oh, she picked up that clip. smart. Yeah. Cause like what'll happen is they'll go in and they'll sign you like after pity the animal. Yeah. And they'll, right. they'll see it, right. you know, and they will be the, will be early to the line. And, uh, I don't know. I get excited when that happens.
2: Yeah. She was, she was super helpful. So anything I felt like I couldn't make a decision on, I was like, can you just make that decision for me? <laughs> and yeah. she would, you know, yeah. like, and I just trusted her. So, um, I really kind of. I just really dislike the business aspect of writing. I'm not thrilled by it at all. So I just wanted it to be over with. You
1: want to be creative.
2: Um, So I'm really happy of how everything turned out. And Um, so
1: you got the book, you teach at Morse to Evita.
2: Morse to a Vita Mea.
1: Morse to a Vita Mea. By the way, I hope it wasn't that's creepy okay. that I was like, are people hooking up at Morse to a Vita Mea? No,
2: that's like it what just... a lot of writing workshops and <laughs> residencies are all about. Especially trust me. in Italy,
1: it just seemed like, you know, it's like town to Mr. Ripley, there's going to be like an interesting. Well, intrigue. the
2: thing is, there's a lot of gay guys that come.
1: Oh, well, so then there should be all sorts of hooking well, up, right?
2: Yeah, maybe. I don't know. It's like, it's just a, it ends up being more g-rated than you think it would it's just like everyone like loves each other but it's not actually there's like
1: sing-alongs and like s'mores
2: yeah everyone's like telling their darkest secrets and like bonding forever i feel it's just that kind of environment because you're just at the top of like this italian mountain
1: god how often are you there
2: um we do the workshop in april and october so we have our third um workshop session coming up in october
1: and gian's over there full time he lives in rome full time yeah that's so cool.
2: Yeah, his apartment is great in Rome too.
1: Oh my god, what a life! Yeah. Uh, so okay, so Morse to Evita, Maya. Uh-huh. Uh huh. Writing books. Mm hmm. Teaching. Yeah. For.
2: Uh, so the Italian workshop, but also catapult, and then I also do private consultations. Okay. Like, so I'll edit like twenty pages at a time and have a meeting with someone. So if somebody um, out
1: there has a manuscript. Yeah. And they want you to work with them. They can, yeah. they can email you and Yeah, you... I will
2: occasionally tweet about it. Like I have an opening this month if you want it. That's cool. Um because I don't do it every month, but
1: are you selective I... about who you work with?
2: Um I feel like right now I don't get queries from people who are writing in like a totally foreign style to me. It's usually like something within Something that I would read on my own. So oh, okay. I haven't really encountered someone where I'm like, I don't really know what to do with this. So it's not
1: just like some guy who's like, I just want to tell him a love story. Or...
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, I can still edit that.
1: <laughs> <Yeah. Heavily. laughs> I, would, I wouldn't really <laughs> reject
2: that. Um,
1: just like the, this is the litmus test. If you want to work with Chelsea in an editorial, just, you just have to sit across from her for six hours. <laughs> just
2: be a guy writing about your life. And just
1: hallucinate while yeah. looking into her eyes. <laughs> yeah. If you pass that test, she'll take you on this point.
2: Yeah, I'll accept. The payment.
1: <laughs> I feel like when you like the Marina Abramovich thing and like looking into somebody's eyes, like because they say the eyes are the window to the soul. Yeah, and I feel like uh, it seems very natural to me that it would cause people to start weeping.
2: Yeah, I think I, I I'm not sure how it how it works. I don't weep, but the people that I that I am partnered with, usually we, <laughs> I don't know what that says about me. I feel nothing. Uh, I just, feel nothing, but... The,
1: yeah, just the cold wind blowing <laughs> through my spirit. <laughs>
2: exactly. They feel my inner coldness <laughs> and are just moved to tears by it.
1: Are you, you're stoic when you do this?
2: Yeah, I think so. But like, it's
1: very visual. You're hallucinating, but you're not Yeah, emo- it's extremely but visual, emotional. but
2: it's not like... I don't have that experience of, because uh, a couple of students at the workshop had this experience of like seeing someone else's face imposed, like superimposed onto the person's face. So it's like they weren't even looking at the right person. Yeah. And that just, I think, brings you to an emotional place instantly
1: sure it's for like me, grandma <laughs> yeah
2: yeah yeah uh so i've i've seen someone say like i saw you being born and your mother giving birth like like all the or your grandmother giving birth to your mother and then you giving in, in within like seven minutes so
1: god i gotta do this
2: i people must think i'm crazy listening to this but <laughs> I, well yeah i i'm excited by things that just don't make sense so that's, I think that <laughs> says a lot about how I even approach essays of like, what do you do with these things in your life that just don't add up? I don't know.
1: What about, uh, like, cause I, I just had Tao Lin in here and it's like the psychedelic experience is very much that way. Mm-hmm. Even though I haven't had it, I can't stop talking about it Yeah, and thinking about it because I feel like that is like, for me anyway, that's one of the most like visceral experiences of the uh hidden weirdness of life that i've ever had Mm -hmm. you have you had those experiences
2: with psychedelics no i'm terrified of drugs and i've never even smoked a cigarette
1: ever ever why
2: i have some fear like i don't losing control of myself in that way doesn't sound fun to me
1: that's how my wife is yeah i feel really scared you ever gotten drunk
2: yeah i I, I, like drink socially yeah
1: okay because like that's like my, my wife's never smoked a cigarette she's never smoked pot yeah She's I mean, and like for no she's not like religious or there's no other reason. She's just like yeah, it doesn't sound fun. Psychedelics are like her fucking nightmare.
2: Yeah, I think they're my nightmare too. Um and I've had conversations with someone that writes fiction and uses psychedelics in like a very controlled way. Like micro-well, like not even microdosing, but like a couple times a year she'll trip. Huh. Um Who and is this?
1: I want to get her on the show. I won't
2: I won't <laughs> disclose her, yeah. Um uh, but she says that it's very helpful for her writing and but like she, mushrooms
1: but, or like what's she doing? Yeah. Mushrooms. Okay. Not like ayahuasca ceremonies.
2: Right. Yeah. But, um, but I asked her like, do you think it would help me? Like if I tried it, if I got over my fear, do you think it would help me? And she's like, I don't think it would because you're operating in the sense of like control versus chaos. And
1: by the way, you're also hallucinating, uh, like thunderstorms inside of people's skulls. Yeah. Completely like maybe sober.
2: Maybe I don't need it.
1: Do, do, <laughs> Cause this is the thing too. Like I've my, my Carrie, uh, has alluded to like, you know i don't know what would happen she's like i would never come back it's like that sort of fear that's kind of my fear and also it, and
2: i realize that's not the case for almost anyone but n- i think i would be the one that's how i feel
1: it's <laughs> so, so like an, an overdose i mean they're really actually super benign in the sense that like they're not deadly unless yeah. like you're the idiot who jumps off the second deck of the yeah the stadium at the pink right. floyd concert or whatever but <laughs> right um, they, like you know the the fatality rate is microscopic Microscope. I mean, it's like it's a non-factor. Yeah, Uh, they're non-addictive, but a a very strong dose. You're in for a a ride.
2: Yeah, I'm just not curious at all. (laughs) Like that's just where I come from. Like I think a lot of people that I've talked to that have done these kinds of crazy drugs are super curious about like where it'll take them, and I am utterly content, like content, not ever having that experience. Pot? No, never, no. Wow. I'm so just control not is, interested.
1: Yeah, but I naturally. Did you have bad experiences as a kid or anything? No. That's how my wife is.
2: Yeah, that's really strange. You guys need to hang out. And, you know, a lot of my friends, like I had a couple straight edge friends, but mainly my friends were smoking and doing drugs and drinking a lot. Um, in high school, almost all my friends were older and doing that kind of stuff constantly. And I was there for all of it and never tried it. Like I never drank until I was in college, even. Wow. I don't really know why So have some sense of like obedience, right? Maybe
1: you were a good kid.
2: Well, my parents let me do a lot because they knew I was good. Like that. I wasn't going to do that stuff. So I thought, uh, if there's any chance I get caught, like I really, I can't go out anymore. Like there's that, like they would keep giving me privileges if I just kept, you know, getting home on time and things right. like that. They would let me do whatever I wanted. So I was able to go to like punk shows and stuff that I really wanted to go to. So anything to threaten that was like scary to me. Your so. parents did
1: a good job. That's like some, so they did some like a masterful psychological job. <laughs> yeah, they'll
2: be happy to <laughs> know. As you know, my mom is a fan of your podcast. Well, so I'm going to have be, to consult her when my daughter happy. turns
1: 12. I'm like, what the hell I do? Yeah. I'll let her go to punk shows. As long as she's not yeah. like smoking meth.
2: Yeah. I think it, uh, you know, a little give and take is good.
1: <laughs> well, and I also think like if you make things too taboo, or off limits or you, you know then you create this right psychological framework where they're like well i want to do that then
2: yeah like i wasn't raised religiously for example uh-huh. it was kind of just like just be a good person and don't mess up too much <laughs> but it wasn't really that strict That's so good. um i think it just gave me i don't know some sense of like calm and just like you're responsible for yourself like just you know, be smart about it.
1: Keep your shit together. Yeah. Don't embarrass be friend, me. Be
2: friends with the people that smoke pot, but you don't have to do it. Right. <laughs> like that's just how I felt right. growing up.
1: Right. Wow. Okay. Well, uh, I'm happy for you. Thanks. And uh, I hope you have a good time here in LA. How long are you in town for?
2: Um, just another day and a half,
1: another day and a half. Yeah. And then you're back out on tour.
2: I go back to New York for a couple weeks and then my tour starts the 19th. I go to Montreal first
1: montreal i yeah. want to go to montreal
2: me too i've never been
1: I, I, alexander chi is i know from twitter that he's there right now and i'm like he's yeah. in some cool bar and they're like doing like the bartenders like like you know what do they do they blow fire you know what i'm saying
2: <laughs> i didn't see that tweet yeah. but now i'm gonna have to look it up because like, now wow. i want to go to that bar yeah
1: i'm like this is uh, this sounds great it's called uh Le lab
2: <laughs> I'm, Just, I'm going yeah. writing it down right now Like
1: a laboratory but uh I'm really happy for you. Congratulations! Thank you, Thank you for making time during your uh, stay here to come over, and uh, I wish you well. Thank you so much. Okay, there we go. That's Chelsea Hodson. Her essay collection is called Tonight I'm Someone Else, available now from Henry Holt. It is the official June pick of the Nervous Breakdown Book Club. You can find Chelsea online at ChelseaHodson.com. She's on Twitter at Chelsea Hodson. She's also on Instagram. One more time, the book is called Tonight I'm Someone Else. Go get your copy. Thanks to Kill Rockstars and the band Stereo Total for the theme song music. Thanks to Cigarette Royalty for the interstitial music. If you would like to support this program, you can do so at patreon.com otherpplpod.
0: If you would like to write to me, the address is letters at otherppl.com. Don't forget that this show has its own official app, the Other People
1: app. It's free. Go get it wherever you get your apps. It's free. So I think I said what I wanted to say in the monologue. It's, it's just a one... These things are hard to talk about. Hard to talk about well. And I don't want to sound judgy either. I think it's important to uh, respect the suffering of people like Anthony Bourdain and Kate Spade. I'm not judging them or... You know, I know how hard it can be. I'm just trying to... find some insight... That can't be the answer, right? I mean, I guess if you have like a terminal illness, fine. But otherwise, I'm persuaded by the notion that we should stick around for one another. See what, see what happens. It could be awful, <laughs> but you know, it could be great. Let's find out. Let's, let's hang out and try to make things better. That's all I'm trying to say. I
0: think that's my position on the matter. So it's running late I gotta get inside I gotta rock my uh, child to sleep gotta go be a father
1: I thought I was gonna be on time but then I had to fuck around with this monologue for like an hour trying to get it right I stress about the monologue man what are these monologues what am I doing monologuing talking at the end here I feel a lot safer talking at the end because I don't think anybody actually listens to this in my mind nobody's ever heard a single thing I've said after the interview's done I'm talking to no one right now I'm just talking to myself that's easy I could sit here and talk all day share my feelings nobody's gonna hear it hear that? these are my uh, icebreakers. I always have some mints on hand it's an old uh, broadcasting trick helps you get your voice ready Where did I read that? I read that somewhere. Icebreakers are my preferred mint, just in case you were wondering. If Icebreakers wants to sponsor this show, I would not
0: be opposed to that. just gave Icebreakers a free plug at the end of the show, but here's the problem. Nobody's listening. Nobody heard that. Nobody at Icebreakers will ever ever know. Nor will anybody in my vast global audience ever know tragedy but the world is full of tragedies
1: this fucking song is going on forever man i forgot to you you know when you use this song at the end it just goes on forever
0: and it's you know i think it's at the point now where i need to abort i need to abort gonna abort this show i couldn't execute it jesus <laughs>